0: Welcome to Coffee and Therapy, where we spill the tea on therapy-related topics, sip our favorite coffee, and share our expertise with parents, professionals, clinicians, and anyone who could benefit from a little therapy. Hello and welcome back to Coffee and Therapy. And yes, you do talk during this time, everybody.
1: Hey. hey. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> Awkward silence.
2: I know in the last episode, Sarah's like,
0: "Do we talk on this?" So I'm like, "Yes, we talk." I, during forget. This time. <laughs> I forget. We've done so many. But tell I've me done. what to do. <laughs> I, need I, to to <laughs> I need a refresher. We have done so many, Sarah. We are officially in season. Two. Season, two season two of coffee and therapy coming to your ear holes. <laughs> you know, the ear
2: holes. I love it.
0: Yes, we've gotten through one whole year, listeners. If you haven't listened to our fun anniversary episodes, go check them out. It's just us having a good time. We took an extra week hiatus to prep for season two, and here we are, ready to rock and roll. Let's do this thing, baby. Let's do it. And it's a special month for us when we're recording this and when the episodes come out. It is Autism Acceptance Month, previously known as Autism Awareness Month, but we have evolved some of that language, which we'll talk about a little bit today. Um, and we really wanted to focus on neurodiversity, neurodivergence, neuroaffirming care, and kind of what that looks like in our work, as well as... Defining it for all of you. I know I've met with a lot of people quite recently who are still diving into neurofirming care and understanding neurodiversity and celebrating that in their practice, which it's a shame that it's just such a recent concept, but I'm glad we're moving the needle forward. And you know, there's no progress without change and knowledge and evolution. So we're here to talk about that today.
2: Mm-hmm. Anyone else chime in. <laughs> yeah, we, we spent a lot of time before we hit record talking about this and talking about what informs our understanding as clinicians and as people who do not identify as neurodivergent. Um, you know, what informs our practice, what informs what we pull from, where we seek information, how we then provide therapy. So I think we're going to dive into some of that today. And, and we've been talking about making this two parts because there's just a ton to dive into. And we want to make sure we're not glossing over important parts and really having the opportunity to think out loud together and sort of see where we where we land in our knowledge and what we are still learning together.
0: Yeah, the podcast sort of like a professional development brainstorm session. For everyone listening and for us Mm -hmm. too. I feel like, you know, I've been doing this a little while, not the longest while, but more than a short while. Mm -hmm. And there's still a lot of things to think about and think through. And I hope that we leave you all listeners with lots of nuggets of knowledge, but we also leave them for each other, which is pretty cool. I Mm -hmm. wish I could... I bet I could, if I needed to count this as some CMTEs of professional (laughs) professional (laughs) collaboration and discussion every week. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess the first question then to kick it off to the round table here is what does neurodiversity mean to you in the scope of your work, right? Like how is that informing what you're doing, which I'm sure everyone's going to answer. It's informing everything.
2: (laughs) Everything.
0: Like, what does that thought process look like? All of those kind of maybe details that could be helpful for someone who's trying to understand how to make this impactful in their work.
3: Well, I guess I could start. Yeah. I I don't know if I'm going to. It's Courtney. (laughs) and Yes. I don't know if I'm going to capture it all, so I might piggyback off what the rest of you continue to share. But some of the first things that come to my mind, um, I work with little littles. Um, A lot of them don't have the language to be able to tell us things, tell us about themselves. So we do a lot of parent interviews. and. That's usually where we start, actually. Um, With all of our families, we kick it off by having a family interview, and we really dig into, A, determining um, what the parents' goals are, um, short-term and long-term, and we also actually dig in to determine um, like, parent stress levels and things like that, um, because we do partner with um, LCSWs at my um, company, which I really, really, really appreciate. And I think that, getting that kind of as the forefront of our information gathering or is our assessment is really helpful because, you know, the parents obviously know their child better than anybody in the whole wide world. And so they're able to tell us like what their values are. And we do work to identify kind of like the, the family's underlying values in that, in that interview. Um, which I think is extremely important. And not a lot of people, you know, take the time to do that. Um, And then the next step, you know, I'm just thinking kind of like outlining our assessment period, you know, we we go into the home and, and we work with these kids. And generally, how um, I like to do my assessments is all play based. So the word like intentionality has been kind of thrown around between the four of us when we're thinking about, you know, providing true, effective, like, Care therapy, um, and so we're always really intentional about the toys that I'm bringing to assess these children. Um, keeping in mind too, the parent, we always ask the parents, like, what are some of your child's favorite things? What do they love? And so we always make sure that we're bringing a few of those things in there too to show the show the child, like, hey, you know, we like we like what you like too, and we're gonna have some fun today. We're not just gonna be you know, awkwardly watching you or awkwardly bringing out picture cards to see if you can, you know, label this or match that, you know, it's all very, it's all very fun and, and age appropriate too. I think age appropriateness definitely ties into ner- ner- neuro affirming care. Um, it's and, there. Yeah, I got it out. I got it out. Um So yeah, thinking about you know, what's age appropriate for for your client, my clients in particular, you know, it's toys. That's how, that's how we're going to dig in and assess and learn. Um, and then actually, really interestingly enough, um, I was having a conversation with my supervisor the other day about, I'm, I've been making some parent training slide decks for our entire company. And um, I have been changing autism or ASD to neurodivergence. And my supervisor pointed out that you know, we actually should, you know, keep in the back of our brain, like, maybe that's a question that we need to ask our families too. Like, how do you refer
0: to, Yes. how
3: do you refer to your, your child, you know, or do you, do you prefer my autistic child? Do you prefer um, my child with autism? Do you prefer neurodiver- neurodivergent? So I think that's another thing to, to take into consideration here. Um <clears throat> I feel like I'm continuing to just like blabber on, but for me, oh, it's, it's, just, <laughs> it's like partnering it. with partnering with your client, of course, and truly like meeting them where they're at. The goals we want to make sure that we're writing are 110% individualized and catered towards them that include things that are meaningful and valuable for them to work on, um, yeah. as well as you know, including the family, the family's values and and goals as well. So, um, Well, and that's
0: critical at the stage you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. When it's a zero to five-year-old in a neurotypical framework and in a neurodivergent framework, parent is so much who that child is becoming at that time. That Mm -hmm. the stakeholder team and a family-centered approach is what would be appropriate across the board. Mm -hmm. Because a four-year-old... Their level of autonomy and understanding is so tied into that family mm-hmm. dynamic that that is a critical and central thing. Yes. As a child ages, that might look different and you might mm-hmm. pull back from the family centered and become more and more just client centered. Yes. But especially for this age group you're talking about, that's so critical. And I think just an element, I wish we had more of because I think you're able to like build for that time, right? Of assessing mm-hmm. family interview, parent coaching. Yep. In most of the therapies, we can't bill for those kind of things outside of it, which is frustrating. And for those, if this is your first episode, you're ever tuning into Coffee and Therapy, Courtney is a BCBA. So their coding and their opportunities for billing might look different than whatever your therapeutic approach is. And if you've never listened to us before, everything Courtney just said might be very counter to what you've heard said about ABA too. Mm -hmm. Because I think everything you just said is so based on who this child is, right? Adapting mm-hmm. the assessment based on what their interests are. Okay. I need to yep. look at what your communication level is. Great. I'm going to bring, oh, you love Barbies. Great. I'm going to bring 10 Barbies. We're going to yes. play with them. And I want to see how you organically engage, not yes. what word is this? Is this ball? Is this blue? Right? Yes. And I think a lot of people have misconceptions about what that assessment process looks like too.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, we still, we're still digging in. We're asking those questions if we're sure. talking about Barbies, right? Like, but you where might are be like, the oh,
0: shoes? My God. yes. Right. <laughs> exactly. Or like, it's what color natural. dress should we put on, Barbie? Like, right? yes. see, can exactly. you label the color? Not, yes. what color is her dress? What color are her shoes? What color are her eyes? What color is her bracelet? Exactly. Right? Not that drilling questions, non-organic
3: engagement. No, no. Because then you've lost the client. You've lost the child. Like, they're not going to want to be interacting with you. And then nine times out of 10, you're not going to truly see the skills that they have. I mean, anyway, as we all know, your first interaction with any clients that we work with, we're not going to see the true skills that they have. But... Um, if you're, you're doing it more organically, like you were saying more naturally, it's going to be fun that the client is going to want to continue to engage with you. And I think that's another thing is <clears throat> just like the relationship piece, the rapport building piece. Um, I think that that's also key in, um, neuro, neuro affirming care, um, because we, we are going to be working with these clients these people hopefully you know for a while and we want to make sure that we get to know who they truly are and vice versa we want them to feel like they're comfortable with us too so that when we get to the point where you know we've moved past this like assessing getting to know each other phase or really digging into the skill building the skill teaching like we want them to trust us and 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 know that we're here to be supporting them for exactly the person or the child that they are. And so because a lot of times like we get in I get into some tough stuff. Like we're working on challenging behaviors. We're working on teaching them language. We're working on, you know, doing things that they don't necessarily want to be doing. Um and again, this is I don't I don't mean I'm 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 <clears throat> if they're saying no, we're not we're not sure, going to be doing sure. it, but it's like it's their kids, their toddlers. Like right. they, right. if a de- if a demand is placed, that they're going to be in control, and we want to give them that control. But we need to get to know them first on whether or not they're just trying to take control over everything, or you know, we're not stepping in and overpowering them. Right. We're yeah, well, and where those. you
2: where you source information is also going to vary from situation to situation, right? So Courtney, being able to say one of my starting places is with caregivers or with parents. Mm -hmm. I work in kindergarten through grade 12 settings in schools, and I work in both urban and suburban um, districts. And more often than not, I do not have access to caregivers or parents. Some of my students don't have caregivers or parents. So it's really important to kind of look around on a very individualized basis and say, what what is this person's support team? Mm -hmm. Being able to be flexible with where you source that information and recognizing that one source is not necessarily more valuable than the other and also, not making assumptions about what their circle of support does or does not know. So, I'm yes. as you were talking, Courtney, I was thinking, gosh, how how amazing that you have students who have parents and caregivers who are able to say, these are our values, these are our goals. Um, I, in my personal circles, my friends with children who have emerging needs of their own are so desperately seeking information, they have no idea where to get it. And so from a great place, they're hopping like 10 steps ahead, reading books and research where you have to have a a baseline understanding of this topic And they're they're not receiving the guidance to be able to truly digest that information, yeah. right? So when when you're speaking with a parent then, and you're you're saying something like, "How do you refer to your child?" and you're offering these options of like neurodivergent, I can tell you right now, some of my closest friends would look at me and say, "I'm sorry should I should I know what that means?"
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right? So it's I think to some degree yep. that idea of of not making assumptions kind of on on all fronts, right? Not making assumptions about how our clients view the world, how they interact with the world, how they see themselves. <laughs> Same with support circles. What do they know? What do they not know? Right. I think you you have to approach neuroform affirming care, recognizing you are never going to know everything. Number one,
3: Mm-mm.
2: number two, we are never going to be able to tap authentically into that lived experience of people who are neurodivergent mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that we're not. And number three, not making assumptions about, well, it's it's knowing, keeping yourself in tune with what people who are living as neurodivergent people are saying, what the research is saying, and then being comfortable almost having different types of elevator speeches, if you will, prepared for yes. how do I make this conversation accessible for a caregiver, for a speech therapist, for a, a physical therapist who's like, I've never worked with this population before, you know, help me out. Now, now this person is on my caseload. Now this person is someone I'm caring for and not making it scary, making it something that they feel invited to participate in asking questions and feel inspired to learn more. I feel like Mm -hmm, that's, mm -hmm. that's something I'm constantly trying to keep on top of myself about finding that balance and recognizing I don't ever want to call myself an expert on this. But I also am past the point where this is a totally new term to me. I have some foundational knowledge. How can I share that and and have everyone kind of join me on that foundation?
0: Mm -hmm. I'm through honey, not vinegar of inviting it with curiosity and compassion, Mm -hmm. because I think, you know, we've gotten into a world that's very one side versus the other side, instead of wanting to see more across the table So opening those doors with non-judgment, because a lot of people have not learned about neurodiversity and as frustrating as that is, and as much as we want them to be better, we also have to give them the space to learn more and do better, or they never will. I think we're so quick to cancel immediately and not give someone the opportunity to be curious and compassionate about what they want to learn. So if you have felt, uh, listeners, if you have felt shut out from the conversation because you didn't know something or you misspoke and someone, you know, really took that the wrong way, and I understand because it's a topic they're passionate about, know that those conversations are still available to you with other people because we want you to be the best affirming and effective clinicians that you can be, mm-hmm. um, so and seek out, seek out other
2: places. Seek out other places, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking, Alyssa, particularly in the music therapy field, there are some social media pages that, quite frankly, I I don't visit anymore because questions that are are truly asked from a place of wanting to learn and wanting to grow and further someone's own experiences and, and clinical skills have been misinterpreted grossly because it's only in written form. Um, and, and I've just seen absolutely awful interactions kind of occur. And I think that's really what Alyssa is speaking to is, if I, if I were the person on the receiving end of that, I would be like, gosh, maybe I just shouldn't be asking these questions. So I think sometimes it's also recognizing the venue. So maybe finding that person you can have a phone call with or an in-person coffee date with, or um, maybe even reaching out in someone's DMs as opposed to, you know, a, a public forum. But don't, don't stop yourself. Like Alyssa is saying, yeah, from, from wanting to do the work and to learn there will be people who are absolutely happy to support you and there are people who are just ill equipped to do that and probably grappling with a lot of their own insecurities or lack of knowledge and and that's why you receive such an abrasive kind of response there.
0: And I think
3: Facebook's
1: Can I just hard. Can, Sorry, can I, Sarah, can I Sarah, jump ahead. in yeah, real yeah. quick because yes. I think the, I think we have to put a piece here real quick. And maybe this is just me. Uh, I don't know, but I'm I'm struggling to understand the difference between Specific difference between neuroaffirming care versus client centered, like basic client centered care. Because yes. as I'm listening to Courtney talking and as I'm listening to no- Noah, you sort of started to go to where I was hoping you would go. Um, and I think we need to go further there. Um, yeah. Because what I'm hearing is, as a clinician personally, who I work with adults and not neurodivergent folks for the most part. Um, what I'm hearing is just really basic, like, therapeutic uh, behaviors, I guess. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, there's been this big push for neurodivergent care, neuro, yes. um, you know, just being, having, having access to these different pathways. And I think where I'm struggling and where probably a lot of people are struggling is recognizing the like the difference are sure. there is there a, are there specific neuroaffirming, yeah. uh care actions or practices or yeah. pathways sure. yes. or pra- yeah practices that are different from just what you would see in my typical yeah. session or in a in a just client-centered sure um care yeah.
0: situation i want to say yes and no because i think the reality is neuroaffirming care is client-centered care and that's why it's sounding so similar because you're looking at what does that person most need Mm -hmm. and facilitating those needs first before the goals which is just the inherent part of client-centered care. I think where the nuance and the difference is is that in neuroaffirming care and really looking at neurodiversity and neurodivergence we are starting with the assumption, right? And the theory based in a lived experience of the people that we support, that brains are wired differently. So the way we would approach something inherently is likely going to be different for that person because the brain process looks different. So that means taking into account what does the attention span look like? What are the sensory differences and needs? What are the social differences and needs from a social motivation perspective? So that one specifically, I could give a good example of in just client-centered care. When we're looking at social goals, you're going to look at what is that person's social motivation, right? What are they interested in getting? They want relationships and friendships. Great. What tools and strategies can we give you to help you establish those relationships and friendships? Let's say that's a neurotypical person, and I'm just going from a client-centered perspective of What does their day-to-day life look like? What social interactions do they have the opportunities for? And then we can structure some skills and experiences around that. For someone who's neurodivergent, I'm taking into account their social motivation, but also knowing that there's an inherent social difference that lies within the neurodivergent community and the neurotypical community. And from a neuroaffirming approach, I would approach those social motivations and those social experiences from the lens of accepting and embracing fully their neurodiversity and not shaping those social behaviors to meet the neurotypical behaviors. So if it was just client-centered, I might be teaching them social strategies for the neurotypical environment. But when it's client-centered and neurofirming, I'm teaching them strategies that are specific to their neurodiversity and embracing who they are. For example, if that means that they hand flap when they're excited, not going to try to stop their hand flapping. I might more talk to them about what that looks like in the social context for them, how they can advocate for themselves to be able to express that, how they can have the sensory tools that they need. And it would be centered around their neurodiversity and their neurological differences than the neurotypical society. Um, But even that I'm sure as you're listening to it, Sarah, you're like, well, duh. Yeah, that's just good client-centered care. Like, what do they need to be successful? (laughs) Right. And that's why I'm like, yes, there's a difference, but also no. The main difference is just it's really trying to be anti-conforming to the neurotypical standards, Mm -hmm. right? Which we're seeing a lot of that change across the board as far as, you know, trying to shift some of the systems that have been put in place For a variety of marginalized groups, women, people of color, all of these things that we've dove into. So it's more when you're, you know, if you're working with a woman, you know how she's going to approach a situation is going to look different than a man, then it's going to look different than someone who is trans and is fighting everything they're fighting right now out in society. So it is absolutely still client-centered care. We're just looking at it maybe from a brain perspective. And then for me as a neuroscience informed person, I'm looking at what does the research show me those brain differences are as well, so I can bring that psychoeducation component to my client of, oh, you know, typically neurodivergent brains have can have overconnected or underconnected brains, and if they're overconnected, they're short range connections. So attention spans look different and you have to fight differently. Skills are harder because synaptic pruning didn't happen the way it would have neurotypically happened. So things that should be easy and require no thought are really challenging because those pathways didn't optimize and they didn't centralize. So teaching someone about that difference as well of this is hard for you and it may be because of this and it's just because your brain's different. Don't be mad at yourself that you can't tie your shoes as fast as your friend that's okay. Like your brain's just wired differently. What strategies can we give you to support that? Um, So it's kind of the difference. Did that help at all?
1: It does. Yeah. Because, you know, as this, as I've been sort of maybe paying more attention and as this push for neuro care and and this has become sort of a, a spotlight, this has become sort of a central thing that people are talking about in my professional circles and even here and everything it felt, I have to say a little bit um, overwhelming a little bit like, Oh my, like, am I, am I not doing this? What should I, what could I be doing differently? You know, because as a, as a therapist, but, but even just as a person, like my values in life as a person are to be affirming of all people, accepting of all people, you know, open to all people like that is something that I value just as a human and so the thought that perhaps that was not being translated in some kind of a way in the work that I'm doing like kind of shook me to my core thinking oh my am I am I just not aware because this is a population Mm -hmm. that interestingly enough I have ADHD I think we talked about that uh, and so like technically I am neurodiverse (laughs) Didn't know it until like yeah. a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> you sure <are. laughs> didn't know that was a thing. I mean, like I knew I had ADHD, but I didn't know that that was under the umbrella of neurodiversity. So, the the thought that perhaps I was not working in a way that would be neuroaffirming, or that some, you know, that my my practice might be turning people off who who might have these different needs was really upsetting to me and so I had to understand but I just didn't understand the difference so I really appreciate Mm. you explaining that there's there's more similarities in just like client-centered care versus neuro like there's more similarities than there are differences but that there are these extra levels these extra pieces that I think really are rooted in um the understanding perhaps or the just like the neuroscientific world yeah the you know the 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 view that you're coming from understanding those pathways understanding the science behind it and understanding that there's going to be a person who is neurodiverse may approach things just from a different place than a neurotypical yep. person and that there doesn't have to be that conforming that it doesn't have to yes. change and and that by itself in in my opinion still as a person who typically works with neurotypical individuals it still feels very client centered yes exactly well,
3: I'd like to like give you a little bit of background, Sarah, just in regards to like ABA, the back, the history of ABA, and this is just going to be a very quick blurb, right? So Love it. <laughs> what what I was taught, and many people I believe are still taught, that our job is to work on socially significant goals. So in turn, and this is going to sound really yucky, and this is not how a lot of us work, but like making people look more normal and act Mm -hmm. more normal. And so the example that Alyssa gave, you know, the flapping, that doesn't quote unquote, look normal. And so that would have been something that someone in my position would have dug in and worked on, you know, things like, for example, um, going up and biting someone that is not that might be something in- we still work on. <laughs> yes, <exactly. laughs> yeah. that we 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 do address those so those types of things, you know. But like <clears throat> eye contact was another big one, and I've talked about that, you know, in previous episodes of the podcast too. We now have learned that it's actually can be painful for people yes. to look at other people's faces because and make that eye contact because it's so overstimulating. But, again, the norm in society, what's socially significant, is making eye contact with other people. And so that's why in ABA, it's still such a big, like, dilemma. ABA gets canceled quite often because that is what we were taught. And that was our outlook, was we need to work on whatever is socially significant because we want these individuals to flawlessly fit into our society as the rest
0: <clears throat> the rest of us quote unquote normal people are doing mm-hmm. right. so and yeah. what's hard and i'm going to generalize this to most curriculums too is and why people still are fighting aba so hard a lot of those elements still are what being is being taught in school. And it's still what's being taught across the therapy board a lot of the time is a lot of these, what we would now see as more archaic notions. And the reality for that reason is not necessarily that the programs aren't wanting to progress and change. It's that the m- amount of research to publish a book, to be able to change it, that you can use in a approved curriculum for a university, it, that's a decade, two decades of work. So we're just now going to start to get the literature that's finally going to be more neuroaffirming because, and it's all these systems that are in place, right? Even the schools with the best intentions of being neuroaffirming to be approved as a provider with whatever their accreditation is for music therapists, it's NASM, the National Association for Schools of Music, I think it stands for, right? You have to get your curriculum approved. It has to be peer reviewed. Titles. It has to be specific books. So the schools have to choose books that are going to get their program approved. And oftentimes, those are not going to be the books that are the most affirming or progressive because they're going to be pretty outdated. Now, great teachers are out there and they're supplementing with the most current research and they're wrapping their programs around those things and not just centralizing it on a book. But I have a friend who's in social work school right now and they're like, why is JK Rowling being cited, right? When she is someone who has been personally attacking the trans community, and this friend of mine is trans and is in a program that's LGBTQIA plus affirming, and then they have textbooks that are roped in there, and I'm like, look, the textbooks are just so outdated because the work to get there. Is so long, so I think that's the big pushback too on ABA is that it's going to be a while before the system as a whole changes. It's also going to be a while before the system of therapy as a whole changes. Um, and Noah dropped something incredible in the chat, so we're going to have her read it. That really boils down, kind of, this difference between neuroaffirming and client-centered care.
2: So yeah. Take away, now. When Sarah asked that question, you know, help help me to differentiate between client-centered care and neuroaffirming care, and then Alyssa started to respond. I took some time to just formulate my own thoughts and say, okay, how can I put this into one or two sentences that is really palpable for anyone at any stage of their own journey of understanding neuroaffirming care? So what I had said is client-centered care is a term that was coined by therapists, whereas a neuroaffirming care is a term informed by the lived experiences of our clients and students and coined and embraced collaboratively by therapists and their their clients and students. So, Sarah, I I think the big piece there is client-centered care is where we had to start to inform a collaborative conversation about care with our clients.
1: Yes i like that i like that because i do think that client-centered care um can can absolutely sort of stop at a point before it becomes really truly collaborative and and maybe that extra step i mean it can still be client-centered and it can still be doing you know great stuff for with your client but taking it that extra step and saying this is this is client-centered and client-informed and collaborative 100% mm-hmm. through and through across the board, maybe that's, so it's sort of like on a spectrum.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And so I
1: think it embraces say,
2: yeah. the social changes that we're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. A yes. lot of what we're seeing as therapists and working on as therapists have probably existed in different iterations throughout the the span of our careers, uh, The I mean, our, our professional fields. But um As our fields grow, and like Alyssa's saying, these these emerging pieces of literature and research are coming out, we are to some degree relabeling and renaming some of the approaches and practices and the ways that we source information. So I think to some degree that's that's where neuroaffirmation came from, is saying we clients are saying we don't feel seen and understood by our therapists. You're saying that you're doing client-informed care. I don't really think I'm informing the care. Now with this whole neurodivergent movement that is finally having an opportunity to have the spotlight, we're saying, great, let's take terms, let's take concepts from this movement, merge it with this idea of client-informed care. And that's where kind of this new, more wholesome iteration is, is being born from.
0: Mm-hmm. And hopefully most therapists are coming from that client-informed, client-centered, compassionate care mindset, right? Mm-hmm. I want to do the best by you. And I think especially in traditional psychotherapies like LCSW, LPCs, LCPCs, you are trained and taught that the work is done collaboratively between you and the client, right? When a client comes to you, you don't say, okay, we are going to teach you five coping skills so that you are all better, right? Right you say, but sometimes that's
2: what happens.
0: (laughs) It's true. Oh, it's
2: true. (laughs) Right. And, and I think that's where those big struggles are that, Courtney is speaking to, and that you are acknowledging Alyssa is these training programs are teaching you as the therapist, you are the expert, which means you get to decide what is meaningful to this person. And that's where it breaks down, right? You can say, I know everything about this diagnosis. I've done my research. I read books about it. I did a paper about it. But if the characteristics of that diagnosis are not impactful to the person, With that diagnosis and not why they're coming to you, that doesn't matter. And sometimes therapists have a really hard time letting go of that. But I know, I know what Down syndrome is and isn't. And I know that you have X, Y, Z by virtue of your diagnosis. Like, okay, that doesn't matter if the client isn't feeling seen and supported and safe. And like what they value takes precedent over what the DSM has said impacts their life. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and what's that true presenting area of need, right? To even with parents where, and that's why I said this earlier with Courtney, from zero to five, just so much of your information is reliant on parents, caregivers, and other team stakeholder members. But as kids get older and can tell you what parents think the presenting area of need is and what the reality of the presenting area of need is can be very, very, very different. And that's why, too, if you're a parent listening in pediatric therapy, there comes a point where that communication with the parent looks a lot different because we're creating a space that is affirming centered and safe for the child to fully be themselves and reach their goals, which may not exactly align with the family's goals. And it's so fun to balance that as a therapist. Oh boy. Because it's also the parent who's paying you. So Mm -hmm. it's really, it's really challenging. I know for us, and that's a whole own episode to be client centered affirming collaborative with your child you're serving and also trying to acknowledge and collaborate and inform the parents that create that bridge from parent to child as well um, but i think the biggest thing too when you're saying uh noah that you're not the expert absolutely not we are not the expert right and i am not i don't identify as neurodivergent so there are so many things i don't know however I use a lot of the knowledge I have of understanding how the brain works to inform, educate, and have those conversations with the people that I serve, because I think it's important to understand what could be going on. And I sort of view my role as a detective. I'm trying to look at all of the research I know, look at the person I'm working with. They're informing me to look into the depths of the research in my brain and go, hmm, what could be most impactful here to try? instead of saying i'm going to try this because they have this diagnosis i'm saying i'm going to try this because i'm seeing this and my guess is it's either a or b is the root of that and let's see what we can do and i think that's the hardest part we were talking about before we hit record what how to work on skills and goals through a neuroaffirming lens and that's the challenge is to be truly like neuroaffirming client-centered, it requires you to have a deep arsenal and depth of knowledge to be able to be that detective and play that role of helping someone support themselves and understand themselves while giving them tangible strategies to move forward. And that can be really, really challenging. Um, I like to think of it as, if you listen to the episode with Serena Tetenoff, which was or a mental health episode, I can't even remember now. I'll link it in the show notes but she said when she was an interpreter, right, a sign language interpreter, that she is the conduit. I started to use that word and framework for myself of I am the conduit for bridging that person to what we know might be happening in the brain and help them best reach their skills and understanding in that way. So I think of myself as a neuroaffirming conduit between the person and what the research says and how to help them best support themselves. And someone else may say that they don't like that and that's wrong to them and that is totally okay. I'm open to that discussion, but that's sort of how I view it is I'm not an expert, I'm a conduit of knowledge to try to best support you.
2: And I don't want this type of care to be scary for newer therapists. Your your training, your experience is very very valuable. If this type of care is something that you're really interested in, find a therapist where you can see their work in action. See if that aligns where with where you aspire to go as a therapist and ask them if they'd be willing to mentor you or supervise you or do something. I think there's so much value to being able to seek out the perspective of a therapist with more experience who guess what likely started where you were and what I don't want new therapists to do is just be like well eventually I'll get to that point I just have to put in the time and the effort but without the knowledge and guidance along the way to meaningfully get there so and and if you're wondering how to find those types of therapists maybe we can put some resources Alyssa in the the show notes of some different pages that we follow um Sometimes I find if I'm looking for a particular type of therapist or educator on social media, I'll go to the pages that I know I really like and I will look at the folks who tend to comment a lot on the posts, I will look through their followers list. So Social media is a gift and a curse, but it's a gift in that you might be able to find some really great folks there. And with how far we've be, we've come with Zoom and doing things virtually, you can totally get some really meaningful support and supervision from from anyone anywhere in the world. So um, don't don't waste this really important and precious time that you have as a new professional. By putting your head down and just trying to do the work from a great great place but not having the resources that you of course need to get to where you're trying to go yeah
0: and it can be overwhelming especially if it's very a different departure or you've dove and dip, dived into it in the past words um but it's Completely doable and one step at a time. We were talking about before we hit record of, wouldn't it be great if there was like a protocol for what's level one neurofirming clinicians? What's level two neurofirming clinicians? And maybe we'll make one and maybe we'll do a whole training on it. Yes, make it. Yes, sure. In all our free time, totally making it. Yes. Noah's like, I'm going to have a third child. Let's make it let's do
2: this. Sadly, um, those kinds of things are totally crossing my mind even still. And I'm like, no, I, know, no stop. I, know, <laughs> I know.
0: But I do think the reality is when you're a new clinician, things are really going to change what I did in year one and year two. When I look at those goals, when I look at how I was approaching things, I'm like, Ugh, don't like that at all. And it's okay. I have evolved. I have done better. I was trying and I was truly caring about the work I was doing. I know I wasn't purposely hurting anyone if I did harm or caused any trauma. I sure hope not, but there could be possibility for that in any line of quality care, right? Um, But I know I was trying to be the best that I was and that keeps evolving. And my work as a supervisor is to help someone evolve faster. Right? If I spent two years in level one, my goal is for my therapist to only spend six months in level one. Now let's get to level two, let's put it into practice and how can we keep doing better. Self cringe is an important part of your evolution. Noah says in the chat. Self cringe. Would it be mm-hmm. chewy? Would that be a choogie thing that happened?
2: Oh, I have no idea. That I've never heard that word. <laughs> That's a Gen
0: Z word. I didn't I say that either. I don't. I don't even know what you said. <laughs> I don't. Even... I said choogie. Sarah, do you know what that is? When things Ch- are chewy. Chewy. I do not. chugie Okay. Well, here <laughs> we're showing how old we are. We don't know what that means. So, listeners, if okay. you can inform us on if that was. Chuggy or not? <laughs> What's that? that on our Instagram note of this. Uh, doesn't even of this roll off the tongue
1: nicely. No, like, come on, doesn't. Gen Z, Ugh. give us some better.
0: I'm
2: going to Urban Dictionary. That. Let me see if I can spell yeah. it right. No yeah.
0: cap. No cap. Okay. There we go. Okay, we know one of them. We know one of them.
2: <laughs> okay, Chuggy. So spelled totally differently. I spelled it C H O O G Y. It's C H E U G Y. Oh. Oh. is an american neo-lo- neologism, neologism coined in 2013 allegedly by generation z as a pejorative description of lifestyle trends associated with the early 2010s and millennials so th- oh. this this oh. Aesthetic, this, is hate.
1: this is pure hate <laughs> against us
2: this <laughs> this aesthetic feel- has been described as the opposite of trendy or trying too hard. So I think we are being chuggy right now. If we say chuggy, we're being chuggy by saying (laughs) chuggy. Or the
0: work we were doing in the 2010s was pretty chuggy. I feel attacked. It's not on mainstream. I feel (laughs) feel
2: very attacked. Also, I would not pronounce
1: that chuggy. I would pronounce it chuggy, which is probably even worse because
2: Well, let's see.
0: Any Gen Zs listening are like, oh my gosh. These old oh, these, yeah. these it ladies. Says, <laughs>
2: just Chug- it
0: says It says Chugi. Chugi.
2: Chugi. All these old
0: ladies in their 30s. Who would have thought 30s is ancient,
2: right, y'all? Chuggy, Whatever. We're living our best lives. Call me when you're in your 30s. Tell me how you feel. As
1: a little sidebar here, I just have to throw this in because we're talking about it and I just need to laugh at myself a little bit, you know, self-cringe. All of those, like, TikToks and, and reels and stuff of it's, like, where they show a lady where it's, like, getting ready to go out in 2008. And, like, I watch I them know. put on... I the exact (laughs) outfits that i wore like layered tank tops and big belts and oh my gosh and every single time i'm like do they know me personally like i have so many photos of me in those exact outfits with my little flip phone like clipped onto my belt and like yeah 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 so yes. nice. and we thought no, and, sure like, and that was so throwbacks. hot that was so yeah, in. Yeah, like it was i saw another one recently about how like we really went to the club in like business casual like we would wear like blazers and like oh, <laughs> we sure would
0: we
2: sure would you're so right fired. Well, like, you know better yeah.
1: you
0: do better right yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes, but no, but that involved. was that was fire at that, the time. Like we were popping correct. in correct. our blazers. All right. No yeah. cap.
0: Yes, we were. Uh, no Alyssa, you got to stop. <laughs> <You gotta laughs> stop. You got to stop. You got to
1: stop. You got to own that your age. Litty. Own it. I got
0: to own my age. But that's the reality too, to like (laughs) circle it back on something that's silly to what we're taught, like to our main topic. Mm. That's Mm. the reality, right? We have evolved so far. Yeah. When you look at that, you even go, oh, God, what was I thinking? Like, I look ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you didn't. Same with the work that we're doing, right? What was then is very different than what is now. And giving ourselves the space for it to look very different in 10 years. Because what you're doing now, my goal is for my research, for someone to come and do better research and find a better approach. I want to start that momentum and then someone else is going to evolve it. And that's great. That is the point of the work that we do is to keep it moving forward.
1: Yeah. If we were still going to the club in business casual and wearing three layers of tank tops (laughs) with a big belt and a flip phone in 2023 then it would then that would be a problem right then we would say all right we didn't evolve so we have to we have to be able to evolve and to not like what you were saying Alyssa like looking back at things that you did when you were a younger therapist and going like oh my gosh like I wouldn't do that now but really recognizing too that just because you've evolved and gotten better or have fine-tuned your skills more does not mean that back then at that time that you were a terrible therapist Mm -mm. it just means that you have you've grown and and we that's yeah. what we have to everybody that's what everybody has to do if you stay stagnant yeah. then that's where the yeah. problem you is. have
2: to start with the straightened bangs and the cringed hair the crimped crimped hair
1: <laughs> yes. to get
2: to the center part with the tendrils
1: yeah yes. yeah yes. yes you do i'm still in the bang gang so <laughs> i'm still side I'm, part but we're i'm the there. president and
0: ceo of the bang gang so <laughs> I love it. Sporting it. Well, on that note, I think we left you with some good nuggets here in part one. And coming to your ear holes. Oh, <laughs>
2: she's got the to evolve. Episode. She's got to pick a new oh, term. Please.
0: Coming yes. to your ear. I have no other word. <laughs> your earbuds. Coming to your speakers. Coming, coming to this. your auditory speakers. Uh, <laughs> we will have part two. Part two. And how to put some of these tools into practice of how to write, you know, neuroaffirming goals and how to really focus on that work. So I think this sets you up well for level one of understanding and then we'll get into level two of implementation. So I think, you know, this episode was just a little chewy, <laughs>
2: <laughs> But for now, let's stick with a term that is evergreen and it's... Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to Coffee and Therapy.
0: Tea. Keep the conversation flowing and follow us over on Instagram at Copy and Thera Tea. Questions, thoughts, ideas? Email us, coffeeandtherat Tea at gmail.com. We can't wait for you to listen in again soon.